You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading The Loving Push by Temple Grandin and Deborah Moore. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we're going to be discussing part one of chapter four from The Loving Push. So feel free to listen along with us, and then we will follow up with part two of chapter four in the next episode. So let's get it going. This actually begins part two of the book, which is titled Stretching Your Child and Avoiding Pitfalls. Chapter four is really about stretching your child just outside of their comfort zone. It's about different ways to approach your child so they have the best odds of moving forward. And in a way, it's a loving push directed towards parents and educators in regards to how to provide those loving pushes to the child. So most children on the spectrum lack several critical ingredients that are necessary to push themselves without your active help. So that will keep coming up as we read through this is they're pretty much always going to need your help or support. It just sort of depends, I think, more in the beginning and less as they get more practice. First, they might struggle to find the initiative to start things outside of their special interests. Second, they often have no concept of how important mastering basic skills is to maintaining a household. Pretty important stuff there. Or a job or financial independence. So those are all really key life skills. And then third, they frequently battle disorganization and can find it difficult to prioritize and sustain attention. So this can be made more difficult by issues with things like reading social cues and a tendency towards isolation. So looking at all of that, it's kind of like a storm just brewing and it's our job to help get in there and support where we can. Self-initiation can be especially difficult for these children as they're easily overwhelmed by frustration, sensory input, and multitasking. And then additionally, struggles with untreated anxiety or depression can also hamper progress. So most children are aware that this is difficult for them. And I think if you ask kids, is it easy for you to get started on stuff? Most likely they're going to say like, no, (laughs) depends on the student, but of course. So the young adult child may actually know that they need a push. They cover several testimonials from the different people profiled in this book where two of them discuss knowing that they either need a push or need somebody to hold them accountable. There's also information from Patrick's father, Patrick, Patrick, our little superstar. (laughs) Yeah. So there's information from Patrick's father saying that this is his biggest concern for Patrick because self-direction seems to be really difficult for him. So, of course, it's always good to put ourselves in the parent's shoes. And I think when we're thinking about this, you're going to be really concerned about your child when you're not there to help them. So I'm not surprised to hear that the dad is really worried. And we'll definitely talk more about that near the end of the chapter. I don't know if you were going to mention this story, but I loved Daniel's idea where he says that he needs something while he's working that will take random screenshots and send them to somebody he cares about. Oh, yeah. And I was like, is this a genius idea or has somebody already invented something like that? He was like, I really care about my aunt and her opinion. So if it just would take random screenshots of what I'm doing and could show her whether I'm working or just playing flash games. Yeah, you kind of want that push, right? I need that. Someone like, hold me if, accountable. Yeah, please. if I... <laughs> 
even with my phone, like, what are you doing at this moment? Oh, I was sending an email versus I was scrolling Instagram. I'm so guilty (laughs) of that. I have timers set on all social media, something really um, aspirational, like five minutes a day. And every single day, I just go ignore. (laughs) So it would be nice if somebody was like, hey, I saw you ignore Uh, that. (laughs) Why don't you just remove it if you're not going to be? Yeah. That's a good idea, Daniel. Maybe we'll look into that. Pushing is necessary because those on the spectrum are unlikely to automatically pick up the mundane but necessary tasks of daily life without us intentionally nudging them and providing them with information, encouragement, and persistence. So children on the spectrum often have little curiosity about the world outside of their special interests, and therefore they seldom come to us and ask us to teach them a skill. I can really attest to that just from working with a lot of kids on the spectrum in middle school and in high school. You know, that curiosity is what really drives like learning new things and developing new skills. And I just saw so many kids who were just really complacent and happy with like, I really like World War II. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) I really like trains. And that's it, you know. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about how I found with students on my caseload at both the middle school and the high school level that they can be really uninterested in learning social skills. So the children that are most engaged with learning social skills are the kids who really actively want to improve or make new friends. And there really needs to be a level of self-awareness and internal motivation for students to actually want to work on these skills. And I know we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, but I just can't tell you how many IEP meetings I've sat in where I'm reporting progress on a social skills goal Mm -hmm. or an interaction goal. And it's just little to no progress, but not because we haven't tried, not because the teachers and the support staff and the therapists aren't trying, but so much of that needs to come from them too. It's really that 50-50 balance and dance and trying to get that buy-in from the students, which You know, it's easy enough when they're in first, second, third grade and you're playing board games and turn taking or goals like that. But when you're getting older and it's the difficulty is stepped up and it becomes more nuanced, that's where it kind of becomes trickier. Yeah. And that's where maybe some of those examples from Temple and her own life where she ended up doing things that she really didn't want to do because they were tied to a goal that was important might come in. So even if a teenager is really not interested in socializing with their peers, and that's not going to be motivating for them, maybe it's figuring out in that child's life, what will be important. You know, you can't stay home on your computer all day for the rest of your life. Are you, what type of job do you want? You know, where do you want to live? So maybe figuring out beyond high school, what some of their hopes and dreams or goals might be. And then going over the steps, you know, well, if you do want to work in this setting, you are going to have to be able to get along with your coworkers and or talk to customers, you know, whatever it would be. And maybe that would be a lot trickier for some kids who really don't don't have those goals. But I think that a lot of kids do have goals for their future that maybe you could tie to a to learning some social skills or improving some social skills. Yeah, absolutely. Autism is characterized by glitches in the brain's executive functioning, which actually is like, I don't know, for some reason reading this part, it really felt like new information to me. Even though when you think about it, you're like, that's not really novel that autism is characterized by glitches in the brain's executive functioning. 
But I guess it makes so much sense to me, like the planning, the organized, initiating, goal-directed behavior, all of that stuff is just so hard for them. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, kind of looking through that lens of the executive functioning instead of just like typical social skills or higher level language and indirect language and things like that, metaphors, idioms, sarcasm. That's a lot of what I think. Yeah. But instead to be thinking about through the lens of executive functioning, maybe these are the kinds of kids who would benefit from working on tasks you would do with somebody recovering from a stroke, you know, where you're planning a party or you're organizing something. It's just not the kind of stuff I would typically do with kids on the spectrum. But after reading this part, I thought, wow, those are tasks that could easily span over. And to plug the peers program, which is not a sponsor, but I love so much. (laughs) (laughs) One part of their program is really actively encouraging, initiating, planning and following through with get togethers, which is just like friend hangouts, but they call them get togethers. The teen needs to pick a friend they want to come over They need to initiate the phone call and ask and provide all the important details, day, time. They need to plan a snack and activities that they're going to do when their friend is over and they need to be a good host, you know, and these are really falling in line with what Temple says too. Yeah, I like that whole idea because that's something as an adult when I'm planning any type of get together, those are things that can be challenging. And I can't imagine if I did have differences in executive functioning, what that would feel like trying to organize something like that. I would be interested to learn more about peers, even though I work (laughs) with preschoolers (laughs) who stutter. It's just such an amazing program. And okay, I'm not, I don't want to go off on like a peers (laughs) tangent, but uh, I feel like what they do, the get togethers are huge. There's a lot of homework and follow through and like parent training as a coach, which is great, but also emphasis on how to dispel bullying and how to kind of have some phrases in your back pocket that show you're not going to engage with the bully. I just, I don't know. I love the whole program, but (laughs) talking about executive functioning, the part in the book, it describes how the brain of an autistic child functions if a task falls within their area of special interest. So it's almost as if their brain is a high-performance car that can go faster and farther than other cars, but the conditions have to be exactly perfect. So the accelerator pedal still requires extra pressure to engage, but the brakes are the opposite, and even like a slight tap will bring everything to a screaming halt. So unexpected obstacles along the way can also bring things to an immediate frozen halt. This is where anything in the environment or anything in the plan goes a little bit awry and all of a sudden it's a meltdown or it's refusal or even though when it's their special interest, they're like really excited. Yeah, I'm thinking about kids who really struggle with writing. Oh, yes. You get out the paper and the pencil in the writing center and they're under the table But then maybe they are encouraged to do a project on outer space and suddenly they can write and write about, you know, Saturn and Pluto, (laughs) you know, if they're building something that they're really interested in. So it is interesting. I like that high performance car, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good analogy. If it's just a boring writing assignment at your writing center, maybe you're a broken down old jalopy and and you're like a Ferrari when it comes to your interests. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know, this might be kind of a controversial thing to talk about, but it's making me think about some goals I've seen in the past 
specifically at the middle school level where goals were being written into IEPs that if there was a school project, the child would be allowed to pick their own topic. And I see the intent of a goal like that, right, which is to help the child to be engaged and just to help them complete the task. At the same time, I really wonder, is that in the student's best interest? And when we're talking about loving pushes, for me, it's the same thing of like, I'm just not sure if we want to push these kids outside of their boundaries, should we be writing goals to really make them exempt from what everybody else is doing? And that's often what the general ed teacher brings to the table in the IEP meeting where those goals are presented. It's like, how much can we make exceptions for this child? And we're doing them so much to the point that they're not even really learning the same content as the other kids in the class. But I do have to say a caveat, which is that the middle school I worked at was a very academically rigorous math and science school. And so the expectations were super, super high. And a lot of kids were placed at the school by their parents as kinder because they loved math and they loved numbers and they loved science. But the rigor of the material quickly outpaced a lot of these kids' capabilities, especially struggling with so many things that kids on the spectrum struggle with. So anyway, that's just like kind of an interesting thought I was having. It's really that push and pull between enabling something to happen and then sort of over enabling and not pushing. Yeah, because in the future at your job, you're not going to have special assignments that match your interests all the time. Right. I'm a speech therapist. I don't love writing reports. You don't. (laughs) But that doesn't, you know, I don't get out of it. (laughs) Yeah. I still have to do them. So this is life. We do have to do things that aren't very fun for us, aren't very interesting. And so the loving pushes are really to kind of show these kids that you do these things to reach a goal. And then you get to do other things other times that you're really interested in. Yeah, I guess it's sort of the individual teacher and how much they're willing to work with the student. Children on the spectrum need to be shown that life is more than just special interests. So they need to learn general life skills. And without them, the child will really not have the foundation for success that's necessary to pursue and maintain their special interests. So like, let's say there's a student who is really into trains and maybe their dream is to be an engineer. For me, that says that these kids need to learn all the life skills that would go along with that job because it's not just going to be like hanging out at the train station all day. Yeah. So while children on the higher end of the spectrum are often cognitively ahead, they lag behind their peers in emotional and social development as well as body awareness and gross and fine motor skills. You can encourage them to help with jobs or household tasks in order to give them a leg up in that area, which is also something that I had never really put together. Obviously, we know that kids who are on the spectrum often have OT goals or goals that focus on motor skills. But to know that they it's really common for them to lag behind so much in that area is pretty interesting. I remember hearing a statistic that something like 70% of kids with autism have apraxia of speech. Wow. I think I heard that from Jenny Bjorum. Sure. And immediately I thought about a bunch of the kids that I worked with, and it did seem like the motor planning aspect of articulation was really challenging for some of them. And I think that it's all related. I I think specifically in this book, one of the individuals said he has a motor apraxia that affects all of his movements. Yeah. And I have heard that. And all my students were also in adapted PE. And when you watched 
them and how they worked with that coach, I can see it. I could see it in the in their movements just with like yeah. throwing a ball, yeah. running. Yeah. And the story was about that boy who got the job as a busboy. Yeah. Right. And how it was tricky for him to like carry things on the tray and pour the water. And yeah, but he practiced and he got better. So that's the big takeaway is even if these challenges exist, you just got to practice. I can think of so many jobs around the house. Oh, so many that they could do. But yeah, you just you have to spill water on a few customers and, <laughs> and push through until you master it. Exactly. So a child with autism has a brain that responds by default with the word no. And this has to do with fear around novelty and unpredictability. It's not really logical. It's more primitive. And it comes from that emotional part of the brain. It's important that parents and professionals expect this response and don't get thrown off track by it because it's not personal. And many parents and therapists just get frustrated by hearing no endlessly. And eventually they just give up or give in. And it's better to anticipate this response, work around it when possible, and hit it head on when necessary. As professionals working with these kids, we can make sure we're willing to stick it out when we're met with resistance. So if we periodically cave into the child's no, then let's harken back to our grad school days. <laughs> We're intermittently reinforcing this behavior, right? So when we say yes sometimes and no other times, it's only going to escalate the child's determination to avoid challenge and growth. I was reading this part of the book and I was thinking like so much of this, <laughs> I hope this is not a pessimistic outlook, but so much of this stuff just sounds like so much work. Right. Like the sessions that flow easiest and are not so taxing are the ones where the kids are super compliant and they just you kind of sail through where they love the activity you planned and they're working on their goals and it's great and it's easy. And thinking about constantly being met with no and finding workarounds and holding the line. It's like that sounds pretty exhausting. But just like parenting a child, it's important to think that if you give in, you're only making your job harder down the line. Yeah. So we can be compassionate and empathetic to our future selves by doing the hard work now because yes. it will pay off later. Yeah. And this whole part about the kids whose default setting is no and how it's the primitive part of their brain just made me think of that chapter in the whole brain child downstairs and upstairs brain and how maybe a good strategy would be to really connect. When they're saying no, you connect with them, you use a soothing tone, and then you engage their upstairs brain. You know, you challenge them with, why do you think this will be scary? What, you know, talking through it. But I also have a specific student in mind. I inherited him from another speech therapist that I worked with. And at his three-year assessment IEP, one year when he was in, I believe, first grade, he was so non-compliant, would not leave his classroom with the speech therapist, with the psychologist, on the ground, disrupting class, completely just melting down anytime someone tried to take him for testing. The year prior to that, mm -hmm. all speech therapy had to be done in the classroom. He would not leave his classroom. He was terrified. And I know that he had said at points that it didn't feel safe to leave the classroom. So he just, he felt really safe with his class and did not like the unknown. So he was put on consult that year. They'd kind of just, they weren't really able to do testing. They were like, oh, he's intelligible. They just observed. And the next year, or maybe two years later, when I got him, I, oh. I observed him in class. You know, I was only supposed to see him like 15 minutes a month and talk to the teacher. And then his dad at the IEP was like, 
I think he's ready to go back to speech. And I think he really needs it. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> you know, I was kind of caught off guard because everyone just kind of seemed like, it's fine if he doesn't get speech. And his dad was like, he gets speech outside of school and he loves it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his dad was basically saying, I think it's bunk <laughs> that you guys <laughs> gave up on him. And he was right because the kid was gliding his R's and he was yeah. substituting an N yeah. for an L. So my name was Miss Noah. And it was really hard to understand him. I don't know if you've had those kids that substitute N for L. That's like an atypical pattern. Hard to understand. Yeah. After that IEP meeting, I said, all right, dad, let's do it. Let's give it a try. And it did take me about maybe four weeks of going into the classroom and just sitting at the table where he is, getting him used to me. I would bring in really my most fun games and then just show him what I had in my bag, but not, you know, then I just show him like, oh, these are some games I play with your friend in speech. And then eventually we played a game together in his class. And by the end of the year, he was coming out of the class and coming to speech and loving it. We did have a setback the next year. He moved to a different class and again, he wouldn't come to speech. But sometimes we do give up because it's too hard and you're thinking, hey, I've got 64 other kids on my caseload that want to work with me and I can work, you know, and then I'm putting Mm -hmm. all my energy into this one kid and it's too hard and maybe we need to revisit this next year. But it really isn't acceptable (laughs) ethically, I guess when the kid needs the service. Yeah, it is our duty to provide. And I initially feel like, ooh, that's a lot of lost time, right? Especially with articulation, which has this critical period where the longer they say it incorrectly, the worse it's going to be, right? The more the pattern is set. So that's a great story, Laura. Thanks for sharing. (laughs) Sorry, it was a little bit rambling. (laughs) But when I read it, it. like his face just popped into my head. Wow, I'm glad you persevered. There's a really great story in the book. This is a little bit of like a heavier topic, but it's really relevant when we're talking about kids at the high school level. It was from the mother of a woman who has autism. And the mother was discussing about how she had to push her daughter into an independent living situation when she graduated high school. So her daughter called her crying hysterically, saying she was scared and she wanted to live with her mom forever, which I have heard students say, by the way, (laughs) in IEP meetings or when we're talking about life after high school, like, I'm just going to live with my mom and dad forever. And the mom was in Nordstrom when she's telling the story. She's like, I was shopping in Nordstrom when my daughter called me and All the employees were looking at me like I was a crazy woman wandering around crying on the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the mom said, you know, she was crying too, but she held the line and she insisted that her daughter stick it out and learn the skills needed in order to live independently. And she told her daughter that she would die someday and that her daughter wouldn't be able to live with her forever because of that reason. I think that this is such a hot and difficult topic for parents of kids with disabilities, you know, especially in the high school years, it's really a natural thing during the meeting, I guess, where the student is 16. Because at that point, if they want the rights, like medical rights for the child, then you need to start applying when they're 16. Because I think it happens when they're 17 or 18. I can't remember exactly. But the conversation is started around the age of 16. Like, do you think your child is going to be able to take care of themselves or do you need to have rights over them? And really the question of conservatorship is what comes up. And 
it's so difficult because the basis of that conversation is how long will you be in charge and you will die. And I've seen more than one parent crying at an IEP meeting, having to grapple with the fact that they won't be able to be there forever for their child. Yeah, I really appreciate this mom being honest with her daughter because sometimes a dose of honesty will push. That's the loving push that the child needs to do what they need to do on their end. I don't know. I just think pushing to learn those life skills will be really helpful, even if maybe the child or the student is always going to need to live in sort of like an independent living halfway situation where they have like an aide or somebody supporting. It's a gift to your child to give them the skills to live independently if anything happens to you. And also a gift to your peace of mind as a parent, you know? Yes. All right. That's it for part one of chapter four from The Loving Push. Thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you got a lot out of this information. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash the SLP Book Club to join the discussion after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? We've made all the resources for this book, including chapter summaries and visuals, available for free on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club to download these great materials. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club. Find us on TikTok at the SLP book club. 